Otoshi wa Sean Connery dasho. Kagaku wa Saikura. Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, vitamin D, ants, and sourness. Joining us today is James Peebles talking about the very large universe. Also, we'll find out what Saccharomyces cerevisiae is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee once again, talking to all the out there in this great land of ours. Are they funding us this year? Pat Buchanan, <laughs> you know you like us. If this show has done anything, I think it's promoted the values that Pat Buchanan has for this country. <laughs> great. BLTs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with the animal of the week. Do you want me to guess what the animal of the week is? Well, yeah, why not? Favorite one, of course, is the aardvark. Okay, you're close, but it's an animal from the other side of the equator, from New Zealand, actually. Yeah. So is it a marsupial? A bird. It's called a kia. No relation to Ikea or... The car of the Kia? (laughs) (laughs) Or the Chia Pit. But it is actually a relative of the parrot, and it has some pretty nasty habits. It attacks sheep at night, and its beak can actually poke into their kidneys and eat them out. It also has other uh, nasty habits, including eating rubber from the ceiling around the windshields of cars. So uh, destroying windshields uh, in New Zealand. Which I'm sure it's mistaking for kidneys. Must have that same rubbery uh, texture or something. That's the animal of the week. But speaking of eating, let's talk about vitamin D. I think uh, the Kia might go for some vitamin D. Then it wouldn't have to eat all those kidneys. I think what it really needs is love. (laughs) Just misunderstood. But it turns out Asians should actually get vitamin D supplements in their first couple years of life. So they don't produce it as readily as others? Apparently not. They seem to suffer from deficiency about eight times as much as Caucasians or other races. Is this just because it's not a staple part of their diet or because of an intrinsic mechanism? What they've shown is the study was taken in the UK, and they found that children of Asian ancestry tended to have much higher incidences of D deficiency, for example, rickets, poor tooth formation, general ill health. And some uh, nutritionists are now recommending that they should be given supplements for the first two years of their life. Hmm. Well, milk, it does the body good. <laughs> I don't like milk, though. That's why you're stooped over with a hunchback. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's got two hunchbacks. <laughs> I'm symmetrical, you know. (laughs) One is the loneliest number. Anyways, this was published in the Archives of Disease in Childhood. Well, since we have all these stories about eating in the animal kingdom, I have an example of an animal that has just broken the world's record. It can eat the most number of hot dogs in one hour. I think that belongs to Kobayashi. (laughs) His powers, I think, were granted by aliens. (laughs) I don't think I could eat more than three. (laughs) In a year. 
So this is actually an ant who an ant. holds the world record for closing its jaw. Closing its jaw. So what, is it very jaw-breaking? It crashes down its mandibles at a rate of 137 kilometers per hour. Imagine what I could do if my mandibles could close at 137 kilometers an hour. <laughs> This is actually fascinating. It, it apparently makes it the fastest self-powered movement known. This was work that was done by someone here at Berkeley, uh, biologist Sheila Patek. She filmed these uh, animals uh, with a high-speed camera, mm -hmm. but apparently they use this fast shutting motion for a number of things. Right. Obviously catching prey, but also as a defensive mechanism. And also one of the mechanisms for defense is they can shut the thing really quickly and spring up and away from an intruder. So they're using the spring action to propel themselves. So essentially the mechanism is it's kind of like a lockjaw. They uh -huh. open up their mandibles and it's I guess it's a spring-like force holding it open. Right. And then they just put a little latch in place uh -huh. that keeps it from shutting. And then when they want to close it, they just move the latch and the thing shuts by the spring force. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is actually similar to what's found in, for example, crocodiles. Uh -huh. They have a similar mechanism. Guess that's why you don't want them to bite you, huh? I don't think you want anybody to bite you. <laughs> well, maybe some people to bite you. <laughs> anyway, very fascinating creature. The scientific name for this ant is Odontomachus bari. So very Latin. But apropos name, I think. Published in our favorite journal. Oh, the PNAS? Yes, indeed. The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. By the way, I actually did visit the National Academy of Sciences this summer. <laughs> and were you amazed, enthralled by all the wonders to behold at the National Academy of Sciences? They had nice brochures, but other than that, it was somewhat of a, a stuffy environment. <laughs> They're across the street from the State Department in uh, D.C. See, but that's just their front. I think in their basement, Yeah. you know, the roller coasters and... <laughs> it's just this very stately marvel of building. Uh, yeah. I think Richard Feynman basically said that the whole purpose of the National Academy of Sciences was electing other members to the National Academy of Sciences, right? So they can pat themselves on the back more, huh? <laughs> uh, we only say that because we're jealous and not part of the National Academy of Science. <laughs> okay, so continuing along our theme of eating, are you ever sour or are you bitter? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm more of a MSG kind of flavor. Oh, the MSG. Yeah. I love those receptors. Yes. <laughs> what is it called? Umami, I think. Umami. But they've actually figured out what exactly are the proteins that encode for the sour receptors now. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. This was work carried out by Charles Zucker at UC San Diego. And what they did was they screened for various DNA sequences for proteins that are receptive or could bind to the taste cell mRNA. This particular sequence is called PKD2L1. After they found it, they tested it on rats. So by taking this particular sequence out, these rats had basically no distinction for okay. sour taste. Sour receptors, I think, uh, in other species are acid channels. They detect uh, high proton levels by direct ion channel. Yeah, so this is an ion channel protein, actually. Okay. A lot of things that are sour generally are highly acidic, right? Right. It's yeah, flow. and it is a subset of those that are dedicated for sweet, bitter, and the uh, umami tastes. Oh, okay. Okay, so this was exciting work. It was published in Nature. That journal tastes the best. Mm-mm-mm. I wonder if we have taste receptors for deuterium. Isn't a little bit of a slow response since it's a little heavy molecule? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the kinetics of a lot of things get messed up when you have deuterium in your molecules. Right. I, I remember uh, someone actually showed that at some concentration system, if you have too much deuterium, the kinetics of your biochemistry slows down enough that you die. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, since a lot of the biochemistry is involved in hydrogen transfer reactions, it's <laughs> 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 the interesting thing, though, is that astrophysicists are actually interested in deuterium. 
And the reason is that it has a lot to do with how the evolution of galaxies, for example, evolve. And deuterium is apparently a pretty good marker for that. So is it after uh, a star has starts fusion process that it has all this deuterium left over? Yeah, actually they believe the deuterium is consumed during the fusion process. Mm -hmm. And so they have predictions for how much deuterium should be in the universe or in galaxies. But what they find is, in fact, a larger amount than expected. So they're not exactly sure why that is or what's going on. Uh -huh. So there's actually two problems. One is why there's so much and why it's not isotropically distributed. And the answer to the second question actually might have been found recently. A group led by astrophysicist Jeffrey Linsky at the University of Colorado has used data collected by NASA's Far Ultraviolet Spectroscopic Explorer, the FUSE, and what they've done is they've shown that dusty regions of the galaxy actually have less deuterium than empty regions of the galaxy. Oh, really? So they're speculating that maybe these dust particles bind to some deuterium, making them less visible to their detectors. Right. So that could account for difference in distribution, but they uh -huh. still don't know what is more than they Expect. Right. It has implications regarding how the Milky Way galaxy evolved chemically, but the data is still sketchy because, according to Don York at the University of Chicago, he says that maybe the equipment right now doesn't have the resolving power to determine oh, these things. I see. It was published in the Astrophysical Journal. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosha listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, James Peebles joins us to talk about the large-scale universe, so stay tuned. back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, this week we have a very special guest, Professor James Peebles, who is this year's Hitchcock lecturer here at UC Berkeley. Professor Peebles is a renowned cosmologist and was recently awarded the Crawford Prize from the Royal Swedish Academy. He's also the author of a few books, including The Large-Scale Structure of the Universe, Quantum Mechanics, and The Principles of Physical Cosmology. Uh, Dr. Peebles, thank you so much for joining us here today at Berkeley Rocks. Thank you, Frank. We've actually had numerous guests here talk about cosmology, um, but we've never actually quite defined it. Uh, in your own words, what exactly is cosmology and what does it mean to you? It's a slice of physics. Uh, different physicists specialize in different, different slices of the universe, different link scales, different time scales. So my main interest is the nature of the universe on the largest observable scale. What is it like? What is it doing? How do we understand both of those observations? And so I understand, um, I, I guess you're the person who popularized the term dark matter. Um, 
supposedly this is or this accounts for most of the mass in the universe. Um, maybe you could tell us exactly what it is. Maybe I should first avoid taking claim for that title. I don't know who invented that word. You know, the effect, the basic effect has been known since the 1930s. Uh, a, a, a very inventive, somewhat iconoclastic astronomer, Fritz Zwicky, at Caltech, was the first to notice a problem with our accounting of mass. Mm -hmm. It'll be the subject of uh, my second of the two lectures. A deep problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I was early in on the exploration of the extent of this problem and the considerations that have now forced us to accept that, no, the stuff you and I are made of, neutrons and protons, electrons, baryonic matter, is a small trace of the mass of the universe. So we're unusual stuff then, huh? Well, we are, and we have the great puzzle. What's the nature of the rest of the mass? Mm -hmm. uh, this dark matter is, to be blunt, uh, a, a hypothetical right. put in to save our theories. Right. But by this point, the tests of the theories have grown so rich that uh, I think it's pretty conclusive. It's there, mm -hmm. and it's an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Why, if we think we know the universe so well, can we not explain what it's made of? The state that we live in with, you know, neutrons, protons, and electrons, uh, is this a state that will eventually fall apart and become this dark matter or dark uh, energy out there? I think diamonds are forever. <laughs> and protons may decay, but they take a long time. I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. We've got much more pressing problems on our hands. <laughs> Uh, so, so the universe will continue, I think, for a long time in its present mode, uh -huh. expanding, cooling, getting. Uh, we're running out of, of baryons to make new generations of stars. Eventually, the stars will wink out, but it'll take a long time. So, I wouldn't worry too much about it. So, I'm just wondering, you know, what are your views on string theory? Uh, there was a book recently written by Lee Smolin uh, called "The Trouble with Physics," and yeah. he suggests that. Uh, the days for string theory may be numbered. Uh, unfortunately, there's no alternative, and, uh, uh, you know, w where do we go? Uh, well, of course, uh, I think to say that because string theory has not been productive to say that uh, is, is misleading to say that physics is in trouble, there's lots of other branches of physics that are very healthy. Mm -hmm. One of the, of course, uh, a very particularly healthy part of physics these days is the study of the large-scale structure of the universe. The people have been working on it for almost a, a century, but still uh, lots to be done, lots of obvious measurements to be made. The same is true of condensed matter physics, biophysics. It's a rich subject still. Particle physics, all right. Perhaps they need a rest. Perhaps they need to regroup and reconsider. That's not so bad either. We could ask ourselves the question, should we be criticizing the string theory community for their lack of production of something really exciting? My, opinion, my, my, my thinking is no. They're doing great stuff. The mathematical methods they're developing are finding uses in other branches of physics. You know, there is a, a program of knocking together heavy ions to make a very hot plasma to study the properties of protons and neutrons, the, the quark theory. Mm -hmm. And a young colleague of mine at Princeton is turning his knowledge of superstring theory into new methods of computation of how to analyze those energetic collisions of massive I nuclei. Mm -hmm. They're still socially useful. So I'm, I'm naive to this subject, but uh, I think one of the debates right now is whether the universe is deterministic or not. And, you know, maybe I'm not framing this in the right question here, but what are your views on, you know, the nature of the universe and whether it's is it predetermined or not? As I understand physics, it's 
not deterministic. This is quantum physics, after all, mm -hmm. and quantum physics very much refuses to be deterministic. Right. It will give you very precise predictions. It's a theory that's been wonderfully thoroughly tested, mm -hmm. and it says pretty unequivocally, no, in the long run, we're not deterministic. Does that disturb you? doesn't disturb me. <laughs> I enjoy studying the universe as it is, and if that's the way it wants to operate, uh, I don't see how I'm to object. <laughs> life is random. <laughs> of course, life is random. In fact, even if physics were totally deterministic, you and I wouldn't be in any practical sense. We're just much too complicated. Mm -hmm. no, what are you working on these days? What mysteries fascinate you right now? Oh, uh, well, of course, uh, the study of the large-scale structure of the universe has become a much richer subject than when I started mm -hmm. uh, almost half a century ago. Lots of advances have given us evidence that pretty convincingly tells us the universe has expanded and cooled. But uh, And furthermore, it's been impressive to see how well the physical theory for this evolution, general relativity theory, does. It, it satisfies now quite a broad range of searching tests on the scales of the expanding universe. Mm -hmm. But we have this insidious dark sector, dark <laughs> matter, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but dark energy, whose properties are very scantily explored. My present fascination is with attempting to devise some tests for the physics of this dark sector. And are, are these experiments that could be done, you know, on a conveniently here on Earth, or does it need some large-scale uh, apparatus that we cannot possibly construct for a while? Oh, well, we always want the biggest thing we can get. But yes, many of the things that are interesting are being done here on Earth at modest budgets. You have on the faculty here Bernard Satellet, who is one of the leaders in the attempt to detect this dark matter in underground searches. That's middle-sized physics. It's not breaking the bank. There are lots of astronomical observations that give us clues to what's going on in galaxies and in concentrations of galaxies that, again, are sensitive to properties of this dark matter. And so by studying these observations with care, we may start to nail down the physics of this dark sector. So given the state of science funding these days, is there a particular field or area that you think should have more investment? Oh, how could I ever? <laughs> I'm not a disinterested customer here. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't complain about research support in cosmology. It's been magnificent. I can complain about future directions. So much of the nation's research effort is going into, well, let's be blunt and politically incorrect, the space station, uh -huh. which you know will be completed and then uh, deorbited, which is to say dumped into the Pacific. Why? And, and you know that as part of the price for that effort, uh, there is a question whether the Hubble Space Telescope will be serviced, failing parts replaced, new instruments placed on. That telescope has been magnificently successful, and yet there was an attempt to shut it down and right. deorbit it. Luckily, there was a hue and cry raised, and that probably has been diffused. We might get a resurfacing mission. The vision frightens me to go to Mars. I think it's a little early. There's so much can be done with unmanned space missions that uh, I think uh, it should be scientists and, in fact, the public who decide what is to be supported. A decision from on high to direct NASA to a given long-term plan is, to me, scary. Uh, that's not the way pure research should be done. In the end, uh, funding for research is done in a marketplace atmosphere, aside from the occasional political noise. 
you see increasing funding for biophysics and applied biophysics in particular going into applied medicine. No great surprise, such an enormous demand. No surprise, there's increasing support for deeply theoretical biophysics mm -hmm. to understand the nature of life, the irresistible problem. Right. To, to, uh, to bang atomic nuclei together is fun, mm -hmm. luckily not too expensive, and the work continues. They are at hazard of having that operation shut down. I hope it won't happen. It's wonderful science. Mm -hmm. And I hope we all continue to appreciate that a modest fraction of our tax dollars going into pure curiosity-driven research can lead to payoffs. Mm -hmm. We can't anticipate what they are, of course. But to continue to support them is an investment not only in the adventure of research and discovery, but also in the education of people, many of whom will go on to do something immediately useful. But no, I have no fine-tuned suggestions for how to spend research money. It, it, it's a uh, the money is fought over, and I guess that's the way it ought to be. A lot of us in America get their science from the movies and from entertainment. And when you think of how science is portrayed in movies like, you know, Star Wars, uh, what comes to mind? Uh, what comes to mind? Well, I have only seen one Star Wars movie, so what comes to my mind is science fiction. It's entertainment. Who would take it seriously as a portrayal of the real world? I, I guess I don't see enough movies to have informed an opinion on whether we're being misled in the nature of science by movies. <laughs> so long as you recognize this as pure entertainment, yeah. then uh, if you want to learn about science, you don't go there, do you? <laughs> I, so. I, I hope not. <laughs> you know, for some it's an inspiration. <laughs> an inspiration. And of course, yes, a movie can be an inspiration without being a realistic portrayal of what the real world is like. I understand you're interested in more large-scale uh, matters here, but on a smaller scale, uh, are there anything that fascinate you, for example, with particle physics? Well, of course I'm fascinated by the advances in particle physics, and again, um, despite the Lee Smollins book, which is charming and well thought out. I disagree with some of the conclusions. In particular, I don't think particle physics is by any means dead or even slowing down. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, they've got to be a little bit more adept at managing funding. You might remember the superconducting supercollider, which produced an enormous hole in the ground in Texas that mm -hmm. then uh, after spending some what, $10 billion, five, I don't remember the number, it's an in, a number I can't even comprehend, was abandoned. Right. Terrible arrangement on all sides to waste that sort of money. They've got to do better. They will do better. There are still great experiments to be done in particle physics, and they'll be done by international collaborations. That's very clear. One of the great lessons from the failure of the superconducting supercollider was you had better take very great care to get on board collaborators from around the world to spread the burden of building these enormous machines. Still wonderful things to be discovered. Mm -hmm. There's going to be payoff, I can't say in building better cell phones, but payoff in young people who have learned something exciting and will go on to do something else that's interesting. But it's going to have to be done in a way that is very careful of the enormous expenses. Okay, great. Um, I, I guess we are running a little bit out of time here. Um, are, are there words you'd like to add about yourself, uh, your work, or uh, anything else? Always happy to be in the Bay Area. Well, Professor Smolin, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> Did you hear what you said? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, my apologies. Uh, I meant to say Professor uh, Peebles. He'll be back in a few moments for the Grokotron 5000. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. 
welcome back to Perfect Rocks. Well, Professor Small, I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Peebles has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. This week's topic is states of matter, or structures in the universe. And we have five following subjects here. Subject number one, Stephen Hawking's. What state of matter would he be? Inspirational. Can so, you imagine? That guy could have been tossed in the trash heap. Someone was wise enough to look after him as he started to fade. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's uh, just such an inspiration to handicapped people. Oh, yeah. So uh, this, uh, I, I can't think of a state of matter. I, no, I can think of a state of matter. Yesterday, my wife and I stood on the roof of the hotel next door and watched the sunset through the Golden Gate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard about the Golden Gate for decades, almost a century. I've been hearing about it. I've seen it on many occasions, but that's the first time I saw the gold. There was clouds of fog on either side of the of the bridge and a gold light running between. Uh, it's a gorgeous world. Yeah, it is. And Stephen Hawking is a gorgeous person. Subject number two, I guess a celebrity of a different kind, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. I know who that it person is. I think I've seen small segments of her TV program, and I know she has a magazine and I have no yes. idea what's in it. And I have on occasion seen a book with a sticker. And she they've been pretty good book books. Book. Yeah. yeah. And, and the books have been good. Maybe sometimes a little sentimental, but good. Yeah. I think of her as a state of matter. Diamond. Diamond. Okay. <laughs> Subject number three, uh, the late physicist Richard P. Feynman. Oh, oh, sparkling. You want a supernova, that might be it. He uh, was such a personality. Um, you know, I didn't know him well. We were separate generations. But we did interact mainly um, at Caltech, where he was a professor, in talks and colloquia. When he was in the room, you were, on your, you were put on your very best performance. He wouldn't let you get away with a thing. Always a very quick mind. No hesitation, but always uh, a deep love of science. Show me what you're doing in science. Let's discuss it, and let's get it right. A very demanding person, to be sure. He wasn't entirely modest about his own accomplishments, <laughs> but that's all right. They were pretty super. But I would certainly call him an inspiration, um, wonderfully valuable person. Let's call him a supernova. He would explode, uh, given the slightest. Of course, most supernovae only happen once. He, right. <laughs> so we'll call him a nova, okay. a repeating nova. Okay, subject number four, the founder of string theory, uh, Michio Kaku. I don't even know that person. I have always thought John Schwartz. John Schwartz. Wasn't John Schwartz? I thought he was one of them, but I mean, for some reason I read somewhere that Kaku is one of the... Okay, so I have to classify that as dark matter. Okay. <laughs> okay, and finally... Um, our perennial favorite, subject number five, uh, the President of the United States, George W. Bush. I'm um, Canadian, a naturalized citizen. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a dual citizen in the eyes of Canada, and I find that a security blanket. Mm -hmm. You don't find him to be particularly stellar? <laughs> well, uh, I find him a great disappointment. <laughs> but I shouldn't say that because I was never very hopeful. The death and destruction in Iraq is just so appalling. And why? Okay, so I think, did you want to add anything else? Or? No, no. Always a pleasure to be here in Berkeley. I love the campus. Great science. I'm sure there are many other great aspects of UCAL Berkeley, but uh, for me, the attractions are the people in physics and astronomy, mm -hmm. just top rate. 
And of course, most important, uh, the intellectual activity in the city is really a charm. Okay, great. Uh, well, uh, Professor Peebles, thank you so much for uh, your time today. It's been a pleasure. And we were just talking to James People, Albert Einstein Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. To hear about more about his life and his work, go to globetrotter.berkeley.edu.